0: Deuteronomy 1, 5 through 8 is our sermon text today. Deuteronomy 1, verse 5. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains, and in the lowland in the south, and on the sea coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and their descendants after them. Today, Moses will begin his words to Israel concerning what lies ahead. He will repeat the words of the Lord saying, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them and their descendants after them. The promise lies ahead, but what exactly is the promise? Is it the land of Canaan? Surely the Lord promised the land, and he swore to them on oath that they would receive it. However, is that the sum of the promise, or is there more? The land of Canaan is a small piece of land in the middle of a big world filled with land and people as well. If that was all there was to the promise, it would be a bit lacking. Rather, other things are promised in Scripture which extend beyond the borders of Canaan. The New Jerusalem, for example, is rather large. My friend Kathleen emailed me a joke concerning it some time ago. A man who lives in the New Jerusalem comes home from work and says to his wife, I had to go to a meeting across town today. Boy, am I tired. Overlooking any theological errors in that, it still gets the point across. Canaan is about the size of a very small postage stamp on a very large box in comparison to New Jerusalem. Our text verse comes from Malachi 4. It is verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Moses is sitting on one side of the Jordan, and he is compiling words which are to become a part of the law of Moses. But they are only a part of that law. Malachi speaks of Horeb. That is not where Moses is now. Thus, the words here are an extension of that law, but not the whole law. Israel was admonished to remember the law of Moses. What does that mean? Were they expected to exactingly follow every precept without fail? Well, yes, but there is more to the law of Moses than rote observance of the laws, statutes, and judgments contained within it. We will see this, and we will continue to see this as we progress through this marvelous book of law and of anticipation. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is turn and take your journey. It's verses five through seven. Verse five, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, beginning our verses, the immediate thought is given to specify where the narrative is taking place. It is the same place where the book of Numbers ended. Be'ever ha'yarden be'eretz Moab. Inside the Jordan, inland Moab. The Christological picture must be presented. Moses is the lawgiver. The land of promise anticipates the place of God's rest, meaning a restored paradise, or as we might say, heaven. The Jordan, or the descender, pictures Christ who descended from heaven to earth. Moab means from father. As the lawgiver, representing the law is outside of the land of promise, and as he will remain there, it signifies that the law can only bring one to the Lord Jesus, but one must go through the Lord who is from father, meaning he is the son of God in order to enter into God's promised rest. The law, as Paul says in Galatians is a tool, which is given to lead man to Christ. It says there in Galatians chapter three is the law then against the promises of God. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under A tutor. Everybody understand that? We're no longer under the law of Moses. With this understanding, verse 5 continues, Moses began, Ho'il Moshe, ventured Moses. It is a rather rare word, ya'al, having been used only three times so far. When Abraham was speaking to the Lord concerning the destruction of Sodom, knowing that Lot was there and desiring to save his life, he used this word twice. For example, in Genesis 18, 27, it said, Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself, that word, to speak to the Lord. This word, ya'al, comes from a primitive root and gives the sense of undertaking something as an act of volition. Moses has voluntarily begun to speak out his words to the people of Israel. In this, it is specifically, verse 5 continues, to explain this law, saying, Be'er, et hatora hazot lemor making distinct the law the this saying the words are very specific and direct beginning with a new and rare word ba'ar it is a verb meaning to make distinct or plain it also comes from a primitive root which signifies to dig and so by analogy it means to engrave figuratively then it may mean to explain distinctly however it is only used two other times in Deuteronomy 27, verse 8, and in Habakkuk 2.2. 2. Citing those two times will reveal the intent of this word. Deuteronomy 27 8, and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And then from Habakkuk 2.2, 2, then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. Though it may be that this is simply referring to audible words distinctly spoken, it is more probable that whether speaking or not, he is very specifically annotating the words of the law. This is what Luke said he was doing in Luke 1 1 through 4, then is what Peter said he was doing in 2 Peter 1 verse 15, while writing out his second epistle. The fact that Moses is making the words distinct indicates that the words already exist. When one inscribes a tablet with words, it is because the words are there already and are simply being transcribed either from another document or from the mind or so on. The common scholarly sentiment that is drawn from Moses' words are similar to that of the pulpit commentary. Here's what they say about this. This exposition of the law was designed especially for the sake of those who, at the time of the law, was first promulgated either were not born or were incapable of understanding it. The expression used by Moses plainly indicates that this book was not intended to furnish a second code of laws different from the former, but simply to explain and enforce what had been enjoined. Though this may be correct to some extent, the fact is that there are many things in Deuteronomy which are not found in the first four books of Moses, though this may not be a second law it goes beyond the substance of what has thus far been given. And further, it is apparent that the first books of Moses were recorded. There are several times where it explicitly says Moses wrote down certain things. Further, the fact that we have the first four books of Moses in which Jesus and the apostles state are divinely inspired words, it is clear that what is presented in Deuteronomy is more than just an explanation and enforcement of that which has already been given. Rather. It is both a reiteration and a continuation of the books of Moses. As noted with the use of the word ba'ar, the words are already existing, but this does not necessarily mean that they are a repetition of words that are already recorded, nor can it mean that merely because of the additions and variations of what will be presented. Rather, there is an imposition of the will of the Lord upon Moses to write out the words of this book. Moses felt that will, and he ventured to write it out. In other words, this book, Deuteronomy, is given as a true prophetic utterance by the Lord through Moses. Unlike the countless other times where it said, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is a word given not to Moses, but through Moses. It then may be similar to Genesis, which is clearly ascribed to Moses, but which does not contain the words... And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "What will be presented is in the first person, and yet it is the word of the Lord. Therefore, Deuteronomy is a book of prophecy in its most profound sense, as it continues the presentation of the mind of the Lord, which began with the words Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve-et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This continuation now says, verse six: The Lord." our God, Yehovah Elohenu, Yehovah, our God. The term speaks of the covenant which united Israel with Jehovah. Though they had been under covenant curses for the past many years for disobeying the Lord, they were still the Lord's people. The picture of those years, that of Israel's second exile and the 2,000 years of living under the covenant curses, is exactly the same. The Lord never rejected them as replacement theologians arrogantly state. Rather, they were and they are in union with Jehovah because of the unbreakable covenant promises he made to them. Their violation of the covenant in no way negates his faithfulness to it. Verse 6 continues, spoke to us in Horeb saying, as noted last week, Horeb means arid or desert. The importance of this change of the name from Mount Sinai to Horeb takes us all the way back to a commentary from Exodus chapter 3. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 1, it mentioned the midbar, or wilderness. Here in this verse, it mentions that God debar or spoke, to Israel in Horeb. The word midbar, or desert, is related to the word debar or spoke. The term Mount Sinai consistently spoke in picture of the cross of Christ. Israel had rejected Christ's work and was driven into the midbar, or wilderness, now Moses relays what the Lord spoke, or dabar, to Israel, all the way back at Horeb, or Erid. With this understanding, we can now return to the comments made in Exodus chapter 3. There we noted that Abarim states the following concerning these words. They say, these two root verbs are really quite adjacent in Hebrew thought. Note that the word midbar means wilderness or desert, and the related verb dabar means to speak. When Paul augments Isaiah's spiritual armor, he adds the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Words commonly protrude from one's mouth, and the mouth is typically a wet place, not a dry place. But it should be noted that the Meribah incident occurred at Horeb. That's Exodus 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, arid, dry place, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. As can be seen, Moses used the name Horeb or Arid in Exodus 17. It may seem curious that the place where God is would be defined this way. But what is it that gives life? Water. The word of God proceeds from the wet place, meaning the mouth, and the word of God is where the water of life issues from. Horeb. The arid place is where the water came from, the rock. Paul in the New Testament says this about that account. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. The words point to Christ. Israel arrived at Sinai and they rejected Jesus Christ. They went into the midbar or wilderness to wander until they would again come to the word. Moses is now relaying the word of the Lord that the very word which speaks of Christ details. The instruction is given to lead them to Christ. As noted by Paul, the law is only a tutor to lead people to Christ. In finding Christ, they will pass over Jordan and into the inheritance, while Moses, representative of the law, will remain outside of the promise. He will die in Moab, a picture of the law dying when one comes to Christ. After all of this, in short, we can say that Deuteronomy is given to lead the people to what they had missed. The intent of the law is to reveal Jesus. It is not an end in and of itself, but a path to find Christ. Jesus said as much, right? Out of his own mouth in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. But Jesus was even more direct in his words a moment later. He makes it absolutely clear that not only the scriptures in general, but Moses in particular spoke of him. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. We have seen that since the very first chapter of Genesis, even the first verse. Every single verse since then is pointed to Jesus Christ. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is exactly why Malachi 4, verse 4, our text today said that the people were to remember the law of Moses. They were to consider it. Find Christ and come to Christ. It is also why Malachi said Horeb instead of Mount Sinai. They had rejected the cross. They needed to go back to the word which issues from the wet place while in the dry place and pay heed to the word which issues forth life. Understanding this, the book of Deuteronomy is a book which is to be searched out with Christ in mind. If it is, then it will make all of the sense in the world. For those who cling to the law as a means to an end, they provide their own path to condemnation. For those who pursue it in the light of Christ, they will find salvation. The words which the Lord told them at Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai, were, verse 6 continues, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Bahar Long enough you have dwelt at the mountain, the this. The words have not been previously seen in scripture. The Lord said them, but until now they have not been recorded. Israel arrived in the wilderness of Sinai at the beginning of the third month of the first year after leaving Egypt. They departed on the 20th day of the second month of the second year. Thus they were at Sinai a period of 350 days. Christ had been presented to them in a thousand different ways, and I'm underestimating that if you remember the sermons. In the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the feasts of the Lord, and in so many other types and shadows, they had been numbered, they had been ordered, they had been arranged, prepared as a people for the Lord's purposes. They had been provided with everything necessary, which was needed for the fulfillment of the covenant, and it was now time to go forward and enter the land of promise. Israel could have left Horeb and entered Canaan, thus entering their rest. And 1,500 years later, Israel could have accepted Jesus Christ and entered his rest. They were to depart from there and head toward Mount Zion, leaving the law and finding Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, they have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Rather, they had come to Mount Zion. This is what Israel was told to do. It was time to leave the cross and enter the glory. Verse 7, turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains, and in the lowland, in the south and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Most translations do not adequately translate this verse. It says, and this is more of a literal translation, turn you and take your journey and go you mount, it is singular, the Amorite, it is singular, and to all the neighboring, meaning either places or peoples, but probably peoples, in the plain, in the mount, once again, it is singular, and in the lowland, and in the south, and on the coast, the sea, land, the Canaanite, it is again singular. This is all one thought, explaining the land of Canaan. From there, it continues with, and the to Lebanon, as far as the river, the great the river Euphrates. In other words, it is the land of Canaan plus what is beyond it. The specificity explains the land. The Amorite is used as a catch-all name for all of the inhabitants of Canaan. Amorite comes from Amar, meaning to utter or say. Therefore, the name signifies being spoken of and thus renowned. The various areas include the Arava or the plain, the mount signifies the mountainous areas, there is the Shefla or lowland, a place and a word which is new in scripture in this verse, the Negev, or the southern area, and the seacoast. It is an overall description of the layout of the land with its varied types of geography. The additional words, which include Lebanon and the Euphrates, are given to confirm the promise first made to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 18, and which was repeated in Exodus 23, verse 31. This is the first use of the name Lebanon in the Bible. The land of Canaan was meticulously described in Numbers 34, and it did not include this additional designation, nor that of the Euphrates. However, these areas that extend beyond the land itself have been promised, and Moses now reconfirms that to the people. Lebanon means place of whiteness, or white one, signifying its perpetual snow. It comes from Levan, meaning white, but which itself comes from Levana, or brick, because bricks turn white when fired. That concept, and you've seen this since Genesis, has consistently been used as a picture of works. Because bricks are man-made, unlike stones. Perrat, or the Euphrates, means fruitfulness, or that which makes fruitful. Both of these are extensions to what one would expect after coming to Christ, not before. When you have works before Christ, it is always negative in the Bible. But afterward, coming to Christ, the land of promise, Canaan, is obtained by coming to God through Christ. Remember, they go through the Jordan, the descender, a picture of Christ descending from Mount Hermon, heaven, all the way down to the Dead Sea, a picture of his incarnation, his death, okay? They come through the Jordan, and they come to the promise, Canaan. But one is expected to work after coming to Christ not before the works are to be an extension of what is received that is seen for example in Colossians chapter 1 for this reason we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him being fruitful Perat, right there the name of the Euphrates in every good work the Lebanon right there and increasing the knowledge of God. One can see that Moses is anticipating Christ, and then that which stems from life in Christ. Again, the law is not an end in and of itself. This is why these descriptions, along with these additional locations, are now named. It is ingenious what God has done in Scripture. Everything points to Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and in him. By faith you will receive the promise, and by faith you will stand. It is by grace through faith that this comes about. In this you will enter the heavenly promised land, and without it you will forever be kept out. The Lord is pleased with your faith, small as a mustard seed. Yes, he lets us know that a little bit will do. That simple act is a powerful, mighty creed. With a little bit of faith, God will then see you through. Have faith and believe the message you have heard. Believe what God has said, and he will accept you. And then cling fastly to his wonderful, precious word. Have faith in God. Rest in him, for he is ever faithful and true. Our second thought today is a heavenly inheritance. It is verse 8. Verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. This is immediately speaking of the land of Canaan. The promise was made, and it was for a tract of physical land— However, the promise actually anticipates the true land, meaning the heavenly promise. This will be explained in a minute. Verse 8 continues, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Israel is a people under the Lord or in a covenant relationship with the Lord, with Moses as their head. They are instructed to go in and possess the land Jehovah swore to their fathers. This means Canaan. However, it more assuredly speaks of the heavenly inheritance where the Lord will give rest and dwell with his people. This is the purpose of all that has been seen since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam fell, but restoration at that time was promised. This promise begins to take on specificity with Israel's fathers, meaning the following men. Verse 8 continues, to Abraham, Le Avraham, to Abraham. This was first promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 7, and it was repeated to him several times after that. Genesis 12, 7, Then the Lord appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8 continues, Isaac, Le Yitzhak, To Isaac. This was explicitly stated to Isaac in Genesis 26. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse 8 continues, and Jacob. Ule Yaakov, and to Jacob. This was first explicitly stated to Jacob in Genesis 28. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. A picture of Christ, as he says in the book of John. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Each of these three fathers of the people of Israel was given this promise. It then extended to all the sons of Jacob, as Moses next explains, verse 8 continues, to give to them and their descendants after them. The promise was made, and because it is the word of the Lord, it must come to pass. And so, despite departing the land of Canaan and spending the next 215 years in the land of Egypt, the promise remained. The time finally came when it was to be fulfilled and the words were spoken out to a man named Moses. On the sacred mountain, Moses beheld a burning bush and a voice called forth to him. When he responded, here I am, the voice then spoke forth what is now being repeated by Moses in Deuteronomy from Exodus 3. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. The promise was then renewed to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. From there, the Lord continued to promise this time and again in Exodus and Leviticus. In Numbers, the people were prepared for entrance based on those repeated promises. But in Numbers 14, the first note of the giving of the land to Israel is not by the Lord. Rather, it is by Joshua and Caleb, pleading with the people to not accept the bad report which they had heard from the other ten spies. The people did reject the promise, though, and the Lord thus rejected them. In their rejection, they were punished. These things will be seen and reviewed in the verses ahead in Deuteronomy. However, before we get to them, it must be understood that though this is immediately and literally speaking of Canaan the land, there is more to it than that. The promise extends beyond the physical and into the spiritual. The land of Canaan was, and it is only, a stepping stone on the way to true glory. We know this because of what it first said of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. There, the author explains that the physical land in which Abraham dwelt and which was promised to him and his seed was only a picture of something better, something permanent, Hebrews 11:8 through 10, by faith Abraham obeyed when he called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Here it is, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This, however, could be taken as a form of hyperbole speaking of the promise of the actual land of Canaan in a superlative way. After all, the land was promised to be given actually to his descendants after him, but not to him personally. However, this would be an incorrect assumption. After those words, it continues to speak of Sarah for two verses, relaying the fact that she was barren and she had finally bore a child through an act of faith. From there, Hebrews then says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The author of Hebrews, while speaking of Abraham and Sarah, then backs up those mentioned before them in his letter to Abel, Enoch, and Noah, including them in this as well. But to them, nothing was said of the land of Canaan. There was only the remembrance of Eden. The hope of the promise after the fall and the anticipation of restoration and rest of which Canaan was to be a type. These people could not have been seeking Canaan as a homeland because Canaan as a land did not even yet exist. Abel and Enoch were before the flood of Noah, but more importantly, Canaan is the grandson of Noah. The land which bears his name only bore his name sometime after he was born and after he settled it. Therefore, the promise of Canaan is more than just the promise of a piece of land. To further explain this, the author of Hebrews then returns to Abraham and speaks of his offering up Isaac, the very son through whom the promise was to continue. But in his words, the author then explains the importance of this. Hebrews 11:17 through 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. From there, the author continues with the stream of human existence, specially marked out by the Lord, as people of faith who believed the promises of the Lord. He speaks of Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Concerning Joseph, it is in regard to his bones, having faith that God would give the land to Israel, and so he, knowing this would be true, gave instructions concerning his bones. They were to be taken back to the land when the promise was realized. However... It was an act of faith which anticipated more than just the act of carrying his bones back. Faith in the word of the Lord means faith in all of the word of the Lord. Joseph's faith in the promise for Israel is inclusive of the promise of Messiah. The Lord spoke of Messiah long before he spoke of the land of Canaan. It was then to be understood that the promise of Canaan was to be a promise of Messiah to come. The land as well as the line, meaning the people of Israel, are intricately united in the thought put forth in Scripture in relation to Messiah. The promise of Messiah is made. The line of Messiah is named and refined throughout the generations. The land is then promised to the line from which Messiah would come. Therefore, obtaining the land by this people of Messiah is as weighty as the naming and continuance of the line from which Messiah would come. However, because of these things, and as deflating as it may be for Israel, the people who are now back in the land of Israel, neither they nor the land is the center of attention. Abraham is said to have looked forward to the promise of a city in a heavenly country. That is not the land of Canaan, and it is not obtainable apart from the coming of Messiah. The same is true with the others mentioned, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and even Moses, who is next named and discussed in detail, and who is then further mentioned collectively with all of Israel when it says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. The whole congregation demonstrated faith, and by faith, they were collectively saved. From there, and as we will see in the coming verses of Deuteronomy, they will collectively lack faith and they will collectively be punished. However, individually, two had faith and they were kept through that time of punishment, weren't they? They were Joshua and Caleb. They will enter the land of Messiah along with the collective people of Messiah. But even then, there is a lack for Israel. The author goes on to speak of the walls of Jericho collapsing, the faith of a Gentile harlot named Rahab, and then of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets. Indeed, he goes on to speak in generalities because the list was getting too long. As he says, time would fail me to tell. Of all of these people, he notes that even though they had entered Canaan and had been people of faith while in Canaan, Canaan was not the end of the story, nor were they the end of the story. Instead, if he speaks of them, all of these multitudes who had lived in Canaan and who had lived lives of faith in Canaan as understanding that the land was not the goal, nor was it the true promise. In his final words of this magnificent passage of scripture, he sums up his thoughts by saying in Hebrews 11:39 39 and 40, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. They're living in the land of Canaan and they didn't receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Canaan cannot be the promise because they neither entered their rest, as he noted in earlier chapters of Hebrews, especially Hebrews 3 and 4, nor did they receive the promise, despite having lived in the land, which has been and continues to be promised in the ongoing narrative. If they lived in Canaan, the land promised to them, and yet they did not receive the promise, then the promise is not Canaan. As this is so, then Canaan is simply a promised step towards the promise. And therefore, the promise is restoration of that which was lost. And that promise is found in the One, meaning Jesus Christ, who can restore man to that promise. The Garden of Eden was a place. The superior word is a place. Likewise, heaven is a place. A place, however, is defined by what is in that place. Some churches have good preaching on the Bible because they believe in Jesus Christ, and that is a place where the Lord dwells. Some churches do not, and the Lord does not exist in those churches. In both Eden and heaven, the place is defined by the presence of the Lord. That is the promise, and the promise is only realized by coming to God through Jesus Christ. He is the hope of what is ahead. He is the way upon which one travels to arrive at that hope. He is the door through which one obtains access to that place, and he is the presence which fills that long-anticipated place. In understanding this, we will be able to understand the book of Deuteronomy. It is a book filled with laws, commandments, statutes, and judgments. It is a book filled with blessings and curses, but it is a book which is not an end in and of itself, nor is the law of Moses a book of restoration, except in its fulfillment as found in Jesus Christ. Where will you hang your hat as we continue through this book? Will it be on observance of laws? Or will it be by resting in Jesus Christ? Moses will not enter the promise because the law must die outside of the promise. Only through the death of Jesus Christ will we die to the law. And that will only happen if we are in Christ who fulfilled and then died under that law. He died for us outside of the promise so that he can then bring us into that same promise when he brings us back to himself. Thank God for Jesus Christ. This morning I was practicing a sermon to do the graphics works for it. I want to find that passage and I want to read it to you before anybody thinks we have made some type of an error in our thinking. I have said all along that Jesus Christ is the promise and that Canaan is not the promise and everybody should understand that. But then people say that means that the church has replaced Israel and Israel is not out. And I would like to find the verses that I was just looking at this morning. It says in, uh, let me see if I can find it. I don't know if I can. Um, Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 15. I want you to tell me, how you can know from these verses, and I'm not going to give you the answer, I just want you to think it through, because in about uh, six weeks we're going to do that sermon. How can you know that Israel is still God's people from these verses? Even though the land isn't the promise, God has made a promise to the people, and they must be returned to the land as they have been today. Here we go, Deuteronomy 2, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, you have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people saying you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elat and Ezzie and Geber, we turned and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab." Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Amim, who had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, they were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place." just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Now rise and cross over the valley of Zared, So we crossed over the valley of Zared. Then the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zared was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. What does that have to do with Israel today being back in the land of Canaan? The promise of Israel. Think about it. We'll get to that sermon in a few weeks. Good stuff. I would like to remind you now that, especially having just said that, that God never breaks his covenantal promises with people, even if they break their promise with him. There is one way to be saved, and there is only one way, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ. To call on jesus christ as is said 1 corinthians 15 gives the gospel christ died for our sins he was buried on the third day was raised again that is the gospel romans 10 9 and 10 tells us how to appropriate that gospel for if you call on the name of the lord you will be saved that's the gospel and that is how you appropriate it and there is no other way to be saved apart from that jesus christ is the only way to be saved okay but we fail the lord after we are saved Anybody here that says that they don't fail the Lord should probably go find another church because you're not going to hear that here. I fail the Lord every single day, maybe thousands of times in my mind and in my actions and the things I do and say and feel. But just because I have broken my side of the bargain does not mean that God will be unfaithful to me who has made the bargain in the first place. I am saved and that is what's called eternal salvation and that is explicitly taught throughout scripture and Israel is a template of that. God made a covenant with Israel. In Leviticus 26, that covenant was described to the people. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do them, you'll be cursed. And I'm going to do all of these things to you. I, the Lord, we're going to see this again in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will. And he did those things to them for the past 2,000 years. But at the very end of Leviticus 26, the last few verses, he first appeals to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, you could dismiss that and say that we are now the covenant people. But then he appeals to the covenant with Moses, the covenant that he made with the people of Israel at Sinai. And that covenant still stands for Israel today, as is revealed in Daniel 9, verse 27, actually 24 through 27. That still applies until Israel, the people, cross the Jordan, meaning go through Christ and call on him. The covenant stands, and God will never break his side of a covenant, even if they did. And you know what? He didn't break it, especially because he fulfilled every bit of it in their punishment for the past 2,000 years, as he said he would do. So not only is he not breaking his covenant, he's keeping it to the very letter. The things that have happened to them have been a self-inflicted wound. I'm going to talk about that. And every time I do, somebody gets angry at me. I'm sorry. If they had been obedient, they would have received the inheritance and they would have been saved as a people. And to this day, he still has his hands out to them with those scars of nails calling to them. And someday they will realize that and they will call on him. But before that happens in Zechariah, it says that two thirds of them are going to be exterminated in the great tribulation. Pray for Israel because when they are right with the Lord, things will be right with the Lord on this earth. Once again, pray for Israel. But your gospel, the individual gospel for Jew or Gentile is to simply have faith in what Jesus Christ did. Please call on him Today. Our closing verse comes from Romans four, it is verses three and four. For what the law could not do, think of Moses, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Moses died outside of the promise. Therefore, the law cannot be the promise. But Christ fulfilled the law. And so by coming into Christ, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in him for us. And we become the righteousness of God in him, as it says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Took me a second to get my brain in gear. Next week, Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 25. Will they go through, or will Israel be the great dissenter? It's entitled, At the Door, Ready to Enter. That'll be our third Deuteronomy sermon. Great pictures of Jesus Christ. I mean, all the way through Deuteronomy, we're going to find Christ. If we just keep looking for him, he is there. It is a law, and the law had to be fulfilled somehow, and it's not by you or me, folks. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan, and he has a purpose for you. But He also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, short poem and we'll be done. Go in and possess the land. Moses began to explain this law saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb saying, You have dwelt long enough in this mountain. To them he was so relaying. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, so do understand, to all the neighboring places in the plain and the mountains and in the low land, in the south and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, so shall it be. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates, pay heed now to these words from me. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which swore to your fathers, the Lord, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them, according to his word. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing that we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for the chance to look into your precious word, which is so precise in what it's teaching us. It's so very precise in telling us our great need for something more than the law, something that we can cling to with absolute assurance, and that is the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, not in our own selfish, arrogant works, but in trusting in what Jesus did for us. Thank you for that. And thank you for what it says in this passage about Lebanon and the Euphrates, that our works don't come from earning your favor, but they should extend from having earned your favor. We are to do our works after coming into the land, after inheriting the promise. Thank you for that. Help us to be fruitful in our works and to ever be so, so that we will bring glory to you and comfort to others in this walk that we have. Lord, we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.